you're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. There's no easy fix for our nursing shortage. When Governor David Ige issued an emergency proclamation to allow mainland nurses to come to Hawaii to help during the pandemic, the nurses' union wondered why that was necessary and began exploring the idea of joining compact states that allowed nurses to practice under a reciprocal license agreement. Hawaii brought in hundreds of traveling nurses to deal with the shortage. Daniel Ross is the president of the Hawaii Nurses Association. He says now that he's backed off that position because he's concerned there could be unintended consequences. Ross has been a nurse for 31 years and says many experienced nurses are considering leaving the profession and more needs to be done to either retain them or train up the next generation of healthcare workers. But he says for now, joining a compact state may not be the best move at this time. Our state already has legislation that allows the Department of Consumer Affairs to issue temporary licenses to applicants from other states. So say you have a nursing license in any other state of the nation and you want to move to to Hawaii and, and, and practice nursing, you just had to tell them who, um, who your employer is and while they're vetting out your that all your credentials are correct, that, that you can go to some fake university in Florida, they would issue a temporary license that you could start start working while they're doing all that vetting. The state stopped doing it, even though the law is there for them to doing it. So if the Department of Consumer Affairs would just do, probably needs to be funded, because I know that was the issue before, which they were short-staffed due to COVID, but there were, I believe there were probably, it was already slow even before COVID. So the state stopped doing it. So why would we institute something that may have unintended consequences? Because the compact is not just for multi-licenses. It actually takes over regulations around nursing and the Board of Nursing. And there were some concerns on that, primarily from my colleagues in the advanced practice area. We had major concerns about it. And to me, it's more the rule of unintended consequences. Why do more that you're not sure exactly what the contest will be instead of just doing what's going to actually fix the problem. We already have a much simpler solution of the DCCA just doing what they're supposed to have been doing. I'm not blaming any individuals. I'm sure it's all because of funding. But if we could get them funded and, and back up, we can avoid possible unintended consequences. Well, one of the things that we heard uh, last year when this discussion was going was that uh, DCCA could lose a fair amount of money uh, in fees. In licensing fees, and it was like close to a million dollars, according to the, the latest numbers from the Center for Nursing, which was surprising. But at the same time, this system is kind of a razor's edge, right? So it may allow nurses to come here much easier without having an emergency proclamation. But at the same time, it may allow for our nurses to leave for other places for higher pay and a lower cost of living. It definitely would make it easier to leave there. And in all honesty, I'm in favor of that because I'm in favor of competition. In my belief, one of the major problems we have in retaining and recruiting nurses in Hawaii is that our pay is not competitive with the mainland because of our cost of living. You know, the dollar amount is good on average. We the dollar amount is, is sounds good compared to dollar amounts of mainland, second highest uh, nation behind California. Uh, but when you factor in the cost of living, we're rock bottom last. So if you made it easier for people to go back and forth, maybe I'd put a little more comp- um, competition on our facilities because they really need that. To me, that is the answer to the issue is to compete. 
in order to get our, our share of, nation, of nurses across the nation, we need to pay them at least the equivalent of what they make in the mainland. Yeah, they're not even making the, the equivalent, right? They're, and I'm talking about buying power because dollar amount, yes, but, but we all know how high the cost of living is here. And, and it's not in healthcare only. Every every field faces faces the, the same issue, but it needs to be tackled one place, one area at a time. But that um, said, so at this, yes. But that said, you're inclined not to push this and to allow uh, the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs a chance to kind of beef up their staff and work on those temporary licenses. I think that's the far preferable um, way to do it. That would solve the same, that would give you the same problem. Like I said, I don't really see it's a problem for, for going to the mainland. I, I still carry, um, I, at one time I had licenses in Hawaii, California, Washington, Oregon. Um, I let my California and Washington license lapse. I still carry a license in, in Oregon and, and Hawaii. Um, it's... It comes out to, uh, for each state, the, the, it's a little bit different, but I have to maintain the license um, by by paying the state fees every two years. Licenses are good for two years and ranges between somewhere around 60 to to $100, $150, something like that. And I think that's a small, small price. Mm-hmm. You have that flexibility yes. built in there. I know that the folks in the healthcare industry are grappling with this issue, you know, of the shortage. And, you know, there's a concerted effort to start training more people so we can fill this gap. And we need faculty members so that we can get more people in the classrooms at the yeah. college level. No, that, that's, that's right. And, it, you know, it, it's not like there's one silver bullet that's going to fix the whole thing. There's a lot of things. And so, the, yes, they do need to have more faculty, right? The universities here were saying they, they couldn't hire enough teachers. So the, the governor did something to help with that. I'm not sure if it's uh, had an effect yet, but they do need it. But the problem being with that is it's kind of ironic because just a few short years ago before the pandemic, none of our hospitals were hiring new graduate nurses. They, they couldn't get jobs here in Hawaii. They were having to either take jobs in lower paying skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, which is less, to be honest, less desirable work for, for most nurses and it's um, lower paying work. Mm-hmm. Or they were moving to the mainland. I ran into new graduates all the time um, as the president of the union. They asked me for help in getting a job. And I'm like, well, I don't have any pull in getting you a job, but I can give you some advice on how to get your foot in the door and things like that, and um, you know, for what it's worth. And others who we would get, who we would meet, um, who were coming back here, newly hired to come and work in places like Queens and Kapulani and Straub, who had moved to the mainland, worked three to five years, got some experience and, and come back. What a waste that we were doing that. So we had to push on the hospitals, and it was right before, right in the beginning of COVID, to start hiring new grads. And they did, and since then they kind of pick, picked it up, and now they're kind of going a little bit too far the other direction, in my opinion. We want new grads, we need new grads, we need to keep that constant pipe flow going, but that is not enough. You cannot have too many new graduates at the same time in the same in the same area. They need experienced nurses there with them to mentor them and teach them the way. It takes 
you know, when you first come out of school, school and the real world are two different things. Mm-hmm. When you first come out of school, you're not ready to be on your own. They need a long preceptorship. And even after they are on their own, they need to have experienced nurses around them that they can rely on for help and for, for advice. It takes you a few years to really get it down and get it to be functioning optimally for most people. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be a so, balance. Yeah, so that, so we need to have the experienced nurses. And so the problem is we need to be able to recruit them to come here from the mainland, already ex- experienced nurses, and we need to keep the ones that we have here in, here in Hawaii because people are leaving the working conditions. So because the hospitals choose to run a short-staffed, they fill us with with travel nurses, and you know, and, and you know, I, I love the travel nurses. It's great that they're able to come and, and help us out, but it's not the same. They, in general, and I'm speaking in generalities, they don't have the same investment mm-hmm. in the in the community, right? They they don't care as much. I don't mean they don't care, but it, it's, it's it's a commitment. A bit different, yes. They're not. They're not committed to to this area, to the to this population in general. Um, they're here for a short stint, make some money, and, and get out of town. That was part of a conversation we had with Daniel Ross, head of the Hawaii Nurses Association. He tells us on any given day there are some 150 traveling nurses working at Queens Health Systems. Ross says after Governor uh, Ige issued an emergency order allowing licensed nurses from other states to work in the islands, he questioned if our state should join a licensure compact. He says now he's backed off that position because of concerns about unintended regulatory consequences. Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, it's a live event on the incredible food culture of Hawaii. We talk with top chef star Sheldon Simeon, James Beard award-winning chef Robin Ma'i, and many more guests, trying to find out why Hawaii is maybe the best place on earth to eat. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Beginning Saturday morning at 9, following Weekend Edition. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to the UH Hilo Performing Arts Center on Hawaii Island Saturday, February 11th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. You're tuned to the conversation here on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we hike into a beautiful valley, one that's relatively untouched by the passage of time. It's on the east end of its island, an hour and a half drive from the nearest airport, and it offers some of the most beautiful views of Hawaii you'll ever hope to see. It's a cathedral valley, 
uh, half mile wide and up to four miles deep with towering waterfalls and well-hidden historic sites. Historians believe ancient Polynesians settled there as early as 650 AD and Heiau are evidence of their past presence. It's a popular hiking destination, but you'll need to find a guide to take you in. The trail crosses private property. One waterfall in the valley reaches a height of 500 feet, a spectacular sight, and two swimming beaches can be found along the mostly rocky shoreline. This morning, we're looking for the name of the valley and the island it's on. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HBR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. reality check takes a look at what might be the end of the Hawaii Tourism Authority. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So your story outlines what could be drama later this week uh, as far as uh, what's happening at the legislature. Yeah, that's absolutely right. This looks like, as you said, it might be the beginning of the end of the Hawaii Tourism Authority after about 20 years. Uh, this entity really looks like it could be going away. And there is a hearing tomorrow on two bills, uh, House bills, that would essentially do that, put an end to the Hawaii Tourism Authority. And we have been watching the back and forth, all the hand rigging. Uh, late last year, uh, you know, under David, uh, Governor David Ige, about the HDA contracts, the marketing and the management contracts. Yes, and and again, without going too much into that, um, there was a problem with the procurement. Um, essentially, the contract for the U.S. Uh, travel market, uh, marketing Hawaii to the to the mainland United States, and that uh, contract is was the subject of a protest by. Uh, one losing bidder, then a second protest by another losing bidder. Finally, the whole thing just said the DBED director at the time, Department of Economic Development Tourism uh, director at the time, Mike McCartney, said we're just going to start all over. And that's where it is now. Uh, the contract is is sort of in limbo, and we're waiting for it to be um, put out again, a request for proposals put out again. And that was cited in one of the in two of the bills, a Senate bill and a House companion bill that said, look, this has been such a problem, we need to restore public faith in the procurement process for our tourism marketing. And this is one of the reasons we just want to dissolve HTA, the White Tourism Authority, and start all over. So, yeah, I mean, uh, HTA looks like they're going to be... Um fighting for their life. Uh, you know, uh, it, it sounds like lawmakers are just trying to make the agency, I guess, more accountable. Yeah. So that's one of one of the plans would dissolve the Hawaii Tourism Authority and reform it 
within the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism as a division. So that would be like the Creative Industries Division. It's part of um, in the chain of command or the org chart under the director of the department and under ultimately the governor. Um, and again, the legislature has a clear path to uh, accountability for the agency, a clearer path. Right now, the Hawaii Tourism Authority is what's called an attached agency, which means it has its own board of directors that governs it, and it's attached to the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism merely for administrative purposes. So there's this layer of insulation that depoliticizes the agency, um, but also makes it less accountable. You know, uh, just watching some of these legislative uh, briefings and hearings, you know, uh, some of it's pretty painful. Uh, and it's it, it's a bit of a head scratcher, you know, why we're in this uh, dilemma at this point. But uh, lots of money uh, riding on these contracts. And I just wonder, yeah, what's going to happen? Will they go out uh, for bid on this or what? Well, that is a good question. You know, one of the I, I did speak to uh, Senator Donovan Dela Cruz. He's the Ways and Means Chairman and the sponsor of the Senate bill, which has a House companion that would reform the the HTA under uh, DBED within DBED. And he said, "Look, if the main thing they're doing is procurement, then." they can do that as a division. Um, but more important, f from his perspective, he said, look, this isn't just about um, punishing them for messing up on the procurement. It's also about bringing them out of a silo and really bringing this function within the Department of Business, Economic Development, Tourism. Yeah, so we may be on the cusp of a whole new, uh, a whole new chapter uh, for tourism here in Hawaii. Yeah, it really does look like it. This this looks pretty serious. And from what I could tell, Senator Dela Cruz, who has a lot of um, influence there at the state capitol, uh, indicated that, yes, that this really is a serious uh, effort. Yeah. And then the House has a, a new uh, a new face uh, with the tourism committee there uh, with Sean. And, and yeah, we'll see uh, how this plays out. Right. Sean Quinlan is uh, holding the hearings tomorrow on okay. these bills. All right. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thanks so much, Stuart. Thanks, Catherine. That's reporter Stuart Yerton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story on this issue. Visit civilbeat.org. of Hawaii Belt Road in between Waimea and Kona on Hawaii Island is one of two popular routes people used to go between, uh, to, to, uh, between the two communities. It sits high above the Kohala Coast and offers travelers views of Mauna Kea on one side and the coastline on the other. The roadway also uh, traverses long stretches of open land that is home to herds of feral animals that pose a danger to motorists. It seems like everyone on the island has a story about hitting or nearly hitting a goat or a pig or even a donkey. Uh, Taylor Nishida is a student at Kanu Ka'aina Public Charter School in Waimea. And for her senior project, she chose to raise more awareness about the danger of feral animals on the roadway. The conversations Russell Subiano spoke with Nishida about her project. Your senior capstone project, it looks to address the danger that feral animals like pigs and goats 
opposed to motorists along that stretch of Mamalahoa Highway or Hawaii Belt Road. Can you talk about the danger that they pose? So I am a young driver, and so I drive that section of the road often. And it scares me when I come across feral pigs and goats on the shoulder of the road, on the road, and even crossing the road. And at times, there's like hundreds and hundreds of goats in this area. And there are no warning signs to let people know to watch out or be cautious. And I had an incident where we were coming home from Kona with my family. And it was dark at night, so we couldn't see what was in front of us. And my dad actually hit two large pigs on the highway. Although we weren't hurt, we were scared and our car got damaged in the process. And after this, I started talking to like neighbors and family members and friends who all shared similar stories. And one of our neighbors shared his story that he hit a herd of goats coming down or coming back from Kona to Waimea. And so this is when I really started to think about doing something that would help the community and to bring awareness to the community. So I started talking with my parents on different projects that I could do. And we came across this project and we were like, I think this is the one we want to do. And so we started talking to different people and getting like a little bit more info about their stories and whatnot. And we were, my mom was able to talk to an auto body shop that said that about a week there has been like five or six cars that have been towed from like the highway or whatnot because of animal collisions. And there has been like a lot of damage to their cars. And so that's when I really started to think about like my next step towards what I could do and help the community. I grew up on the Big Island. I know the stretch of road that you're talking about. And for the people that are listening that might not be aware, we're talking about this stretch of road from the Waimea Airport to the Waikoloa Junction and then out towards Kona, right? So there, we're talking about yeah. basically what we call on the Big Island the, the mountain road. Yeah. Yeah. So when you decided to make this your capstone project. How did you want to address the issue? I know that you reached out to the Hawaii Department of Transportation. Can you take me through the timeline of of what you decided to do next after you determined this is the project you wanted to work on? So I contacted Tim Richards, who was previously the county councilman, but is now the Hawaii State Senator. And he put me in contact with James Hustis and Ed Sniffin, and I was able to email them and get a reply back. And James Eustace, who is the chairman for the South Kohala Traffic Safety Committee, I was able to have a Zoom call with him, and I talked about what I wanted to do and my concern, my problem, and the outcome of my project. And they all joined in support and supporting me with this project. And then I moved on to emailing Ed Sniffin, who is the director of the Department of Transportation. And I was able to get many Zoom calls 
the first Zoom call was to like basically go over what my project is about. And then later on in the second Zoom call, he uh, was like, I will help you with your project. And so basically my project, I wanted to put up more warning signs along the section of area. And so Ed Sniffin said that we could get this going and it would take a couple weeks for the signs to be ready. But once it's ready, we'll email you the date and time. And so from there on February 9th, 2023, sometime in the morning, we're gonna be going down to the section of the highway and we're actually gonna be putting up the signages along that area. That's great that you were able to reach out to your public officials and they were receptive of your idea and able to help you complete your project. Did you get to design the sign or anything like that? Do you know what it'll look like? Does it just have maybe a picture of a, of a goat and a pig or something like that? I wasn't able to design the signs, but I did get a email from them the first day and it's gonna probably say wild animals exiting the next two miles. Oh, okay. So wild animal crossing, next two miles. That's good. Yeah. Okay, okay. And how do you anticipate these signs will bring awareness to the issue of feral animals on the Big Island highways? How do you anticipate it'll help keep motorists safe? Well, I know that it's only like a small part to like a bigger solution, but being able to have these signages will at least warn vehicles passing the opportunity to slow down and be cautious during this section of the highway. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Just bringing awareness to it is a big part of, of the solution, making sure that motorists, especially visitors that travel that stretch of road, they may not know that we have wild animals. They may not know that we have wild pigs and and goats that cross the highway. So the awareness, I imagine it will definitely help decrease the amount of collisions. And speaking about the collision that you and your family had with the pig, when you hit the two large pigs, you said there was damage to the car, but what was the impact to the animal as well? Were they able to get up and, and walk away or, or did they end up passing? They end up passing. Okay. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's a sad thing too, right? Not only is there damage and potential injury to the driver, but you also have these innocent animals that also could potentially lose their lives as well. And so hopefully these signs will will be able to save a lot of life and money and heartache. What did you think about the whole process that you went through? What did you learn about how the government works and how the public can work with the government to accomplish something? So this experience has taught me the importance of community activism, where community members work with the government to solve our local problems. And honestly, I was expecting pushback to my idea but was happy when I found support from each of the people, from my teachers to the county council, to the local community, and also to the HDOT. And I felt empowered with this experience to continue my involvement on the issues that affect our local community. That's a great thing for a young person to experience. Do you feel like maybe maybe you might be interested in a role in politics out of high school? 
Possibly. Possibly, yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Taylor. I really enjoyed talking to you and learning about your process. Thank you so much for your time. That was Kanu Oka'ina Sr. Taylor Nishida talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. The new Wild Animal Crossing next two miles signs are scheduled to be erected along Hawaii Belt Road on Thursday, February 9th. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. This Saturday, join us in person for the return of HPR's Atherton Concert Series with Uhe Uhene, experience an evening of uplifting harmonies from this trio of cousins. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at waikoloabeachresort.com. Today is a big day for the storied 442nd Combat Team. Here to tell us all about it is HPR's Jaina Omai. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. And so, yes, uh, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team was officially activated on February 1st, 1943. So it's their 80th anniversary this year. Amazing. It's been so many decades since um, that historic event, right? And basically, they were a unit of second-generation Japanese-Americans. They're also known as Nisei. And so thousands of them from Hawaii and the continent enlisted. And they really went on to make history during World War II. And so for my feature, I spoke to Lynn Harakuji. She was the former president of the Nisei Veterans Legacy. So it's a nonprofit that really preserves and perpetuates the Nisei soldiers' stories. And her dad, Walter, served in the 442. I feel a sense of urgency at this 80th anniversary because each year the number of veterans are diminished. And my generation, the Sansei generation, the third generation, we're aging out. And so I feel an urgency to ensure that their stories are shared with younger people because it's the younger people, not me, who will perpetuate this legacy. So how does the younger generation learn about this? Yeah, so Lynn tells me that through her work with the Nisei Veterans Legacy, they do a number of presentations, school visits with young groups, things like that. She also tries to get the youth involved with their annual ceremony that they hold at Punchbowl to honor the Nisei soldiers. And so one of them is 17-year-old Sage Totori. So he's a senior at Island Pacific Academy in Kapolei. And what he's doing is he's working 
looking to add the GPS locations to every single Nisei veteran grave site uh, at Punchbowl on the Find a Grave app. So he spends every Saturday there with his family, some of his friends and volunteers to kind of hopefully finish the project by March. And so he actually met Lynn and the NVL through his Boy Scouts troop, and they were invited to that Nisei veteran ceremony at Punchbowl to place flags at the soldiers' grave sites. It was really magical because I remember I was reading up on them when I was researching this project, and it was just, it's, it's so surreal, I guess, to shake hands with someone who's been there. It was cool. Do we know how many of our Nisei are still alive? You know, Catherine, that's a great question, and it's something that I asked Lynn and the NVL folks as well. And she told me that it's it's a little difficult to track now since it's been so long um, since you know the veterans came back from the war. So they actually don't have a specific number. What we do know is that many of them we see in the news have already passed away, and those that are still alive are most likely in their late 90s to 100 plus years old. Uh, for my feature, for example, I talked to. To one 442 veteran, he's going to be 103 this year. Wow. So you can imagine many of them are that age. And, you know, Lynn tells me that the number of the veterans who attend their ceremonies at Punchbowl has significantly declined over the years, as you can imagine. Before, they used to have, you know, many dozens attending. But at last year's ceremony, they just had five. So, you know, she really sees this as an opportunity, as an urgency to really continue to share their stories and also to remember that you know their legacy also goes beyond the battlefield these were real people and you can relate to them as real people as regular joes who happen to do an extraordinary thing but it's really their lives subsequent to the two or three years they spent on the battlefield that you know may have more meaning to them as well you know, I've always just admired the stories around, you know, the courage of the men that fought there with the 442nd. But I understand that you have a connection to the I, unit. <laughs> I do, yes. So my my grandpa, Hideo Nimori, he's one of those average, the regular Joes that Lynn described. He was in the 442 in the service company. And what Lynn said was really true, that these veterans, like my grandpa, were decorated soldiers. You know, they did so much on the battlefield. and But they really had a story after the war, right? They came home, they got married, they had kids, they really built careers and communities. And so, you know, that was the case for my grandpa, you know, growing up, he was grandpa, you know, and I really enjoyed my childhood and growing up with him. And I knew that he was part of this this unit, right? But I didn't really understand how how big it was until I got older and I started asking him questions. So as a journalist, it's really been an honor and a privilege, honestly, to write stories about our Nisei veterans. And I really feel that, you know, my grandpa had died in 2012. And I feel that as I've got to meet them and their families, tell their stories, I kind of feel like I got a piece of him back, you know, that I thought mm. I had lost when he died. So and I know that so many their story resonates with so many people here in the islands. Yeah, well, they call them the greatest generation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gina. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking to HPR's Gina Omae about the 80th anniversary of the 442nd combat team.
time now for your backyard quiz answer. In the quiz today, we talked about a valley on the east end of the Friendly Isle that was once home to a population of thousands. It was a rich source of kalo and was in continuous use as an agricultural site until the 1946 and 1957 tsunamis, uh, which destroyed the lo'i. Archaeologists trace human habitation there back nearly 1,500 years, making it one of the earliest known settlements in Hawaii. 17 heiau can be found here, along with irrigation channels, ancient walls, and terraces. Visitors have to take a long drive from the airport past local fish ponds, 20-mile beach, and the island's first First Christian Church, built in 1833. And we are talking about the unforgettable views of Molokai's Halava Valley, the answers to today's backyard quiz. And congrats to our winner, Harold Tyler from Kaneohe. He says he's hiked back there. Uh, you got it right. Have an idea for a quiz you'd like to share? Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio and we now go to this week's Manu Minute with an introduction from the Golden State. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the California quail. California quail are native to the west coast of North America and were first introduced to Hawaii way back in 1818 as a gift from a ship captain to King Kamehameha I. By the end of the 1800s, quail had expanded and become common across all the main Hawaiian islands. Like many other game bird introductions to Hawaii, their numbers declined for a variety of reasons, including hunting, predators, particularly mongoose, and possibly disease, to the point where they're now rare on all islands except for the big island, where they're still fairly common. California quail are only about 10 inches long from the tip of their tail to their bill, and are known for their distinct curled black topknot on their head that's made up of six feathers that droop forward. The males are particularly striking with a bluish-gray breast and back with white streaks and chestnut-colored cap on their head. California quail are mostly found in higher-elevation grasslands and woodlands on Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa, where they feed on a variety of seeds of both native and introduced plant species, also leaves and insects. They lay about 12 to 16 eggs in a nest, and similar to chickens, their young are known as precocial, meaning the babies are able to follow their parents and forage for food within minutes after hatching. One way to find California quail is by their call, which sounds a bit like Chicago, Chicago. You can typically find quail in big flocks, known as coveys, on the ground. But if they're startled, they'll loudly burst into flight all at once, making them very popular with hunters. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, providing tile, mosaic murals, and planters for more than 25 years. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about hydroflow permeable pavers designed to absorb rainwater and reduce runoff. HPR's Atherton concerts are back after a nearly three-year hiatus due to the pandemic. The four-week Mele Hawaii performance series features several local Hawaiian artists over the month of February. Getting us started this weekend is Uhe Uhene. The trio has been together for almost 10 years and features cousins Lena Robbins, Heather Kapua Kalua, and Jordan Aina Asing. Paige Okimura, host of HPR show uh, Hawaii Kulaivi, sat down with Kalua to talk about the band. Radio, as long as I've been here, has not ever done a Mele Hawaii series, and Uhe Uhene is kicking it off. And even though I've been good friends with Kapua and Aina and Lena for quite a few years, I wanted to ask Kapua to share the story of Uhe Uhene and how you folks came together as a group. Oh, Uhe Uhene? In Hawaiian means tra-la-la, and basically that's what it was. I actually met Aina when we were taking Papolalo Hawaii at Kapi'olani Community College right up the road. And funny fact is we knew each other's dads our whole lives because they played music together, Uncle Kaipo Asing and my dad, Bernard Kalua. And I knew Aina's older brothers, Puka and Adam, but we didn't know each other. And so we just so happened to be sitting next to each other in Hawaiian language class, and we heard our names get called. And so we said, oh my gosh, are you Uncle Kaipo's son? He goes, uh, yeah, are you Uncle Bernard's daughter? I said, yeah, and so the rest is history. He introduced me to music at this caliber, he taught me how to play upright bass, and we met Lena through the grapevine of Kamehameha Schools, and we've been together for almost 10 years performing as Uhe Uhene. We actually started off as Kapu Okahaku Laulani, but that was just too long that we ended up with Uhene, which then became known as Uhe Uhene, and that's been the catch ever since. So you're coming up on almost 10 years as Uhe Uhene, mm-hmm. but you've actually been singing together for probably at minimum 10 years now. Yes. Right? And so Kapua Kahakulaulani, I actually really loved that name. <laughs> and for you folks, it's, it's... You were at our first gig at International Marketplace. I was! Yes. Wow. Yes. OG. Really? Um, but you folks recorded Kaulananapua for... Finding Ohana on Netflix? Yes, we were able to perform for the premiere, the movie premiere on oh. Netflix. So this wasn't even, this was before the rest of the world could see it. This was just for the selected VIPs. And so we were invited to share and 
they released it around the illegal overthrow of our Hawaiian kingdom. And so what better than to kaulana napua? Right. And actually, we just celebrated Onipa'awa, mm-hmm. recognized Onipa'a mm-hmm. just last weekend. Just last weekend. So again, all the stars are aligning. To me, it says a lot for Hawaii Public Radio to make their first in-person series a Mele Hawaii series. get you another pretty standard I guess nowadays must be standard uh, <laughs> set of Oheohenes. so we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk a little bit about this this is one of my favorite Oheohene sets and we just talked about the album cover yeah but this is <laughs> Kaleo Kalani this is live performing their Kaleo Kalani medley live performing their Kaleo Kalani medley which has become uh, it's become quite a staple in your guys sets huh yeah and it's a good time to talk about your the influences you know outside of your family and outside Mm -hmm. you know we talked about Mele Hawaii and you're right like Aina's been surrounded by it his whole life as well and Lena and Lena but you guys also bring in a lot of your other musical influences. That, and that's what I think makes it so great. I think that's what makes it catchy. I think the nostalgia of the sound and of the songs, that's what really, you know, hooks people in. So I want to talk about like, yeah, what are you guys other influences? Like what influences the songs that you sing today? Honestly, you know, we love almost every type of music genre and I mean, especially Lena, you know, Lena, the R&B is really, you know, what I feel is her first love, you know, and, and she's been able to do that, the contemporary stuff. But here in Hawaii, Mele Hawaii, you'll always have a job. And that's also what pays, pays our bills, you know, and, but we're also able to perpetuate our culture and carry out our lineage. But She's diving into the R&B stuff, but all those flavors, those flavors that we like to add into the music while still trying to stick to what's traditional. Because we have a lot of people who rip us in, in our lives and, you know, don't don't get all fancy with the stuff. Stick to what's traditional. But I was told, you know, main thing, you try to do it as traditional as possible, but you can be creative and that's what separates you from everyone else. Sounding like everyone else. And so I think, you know, we bring in our oldies, our contemporary, I'm not gonna, I can't say Jawaiian because that's, people cringe about that, but the island music, reggae inspired Chalangalang blend, which that's 
you know, most people say, oh, that's the old Chalangalang style when, when we sing. All of that in one, that makes us uhe And I think when we sing, you know, we always see people dancing in their seats. And so that's what we try to bring forth our families and our own personal flair and um, inspirations in, into what we create as our sound. That was Uhe Uene's Heather Kapua Kalua talking with HPR's um, um, music host, Paige Okimura. You might know her as DJ Mermaid. Our Atherton Concert Series kicks off this Saturday, February 4th. Check out the concert lineup and get tickets on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. But don't delay. Some shows are selling out fast. <laughs> to go now, but up tomorrow we learn about what Kaiser Permanente Hawaii is doing to help with the nursing shortage. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org You want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows on the HPR website or by searching for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the Conversation. (laughs) 